Hi guys, I'm pumped to be here. As Brennan said, I am the old man that he kicked out um, a couple years ago from being the college young adult pastor. My name is Ben. I am currently now the multiplication and networking pastor here at Grace Point. Some of you know me, some of you don't. Um, I get to have the privilege and honor of overseeing our residency department, which is just, I get to kind of disciple and develop future pastors, uh, those who've been called in the ministry. So if that's you, come talk to me. Um, but I also get to walk alongside and work with other churches, one in Aberdeen and, and one in Watertown, where we just kind of resource them from here with relationship and, and sometimes financially. Um, sometimes we'll send people up to go preach and lead worship and do different things. And just to be, be able to help other churches do what God has asked and called them to do. Uh, I am very passionate about passionate about Oasis, about college young adult ministry. Um, like Brent said, I was a pastor for a couple years. This is the ministry that changed my life. This is a ministry where God got a hold of my heart, where I started to learn a little bit of just who God really is. And that's what we're stepping into over the next three weeks. We're talking about literally titled God is, right? The character of God, attributes of God. And this could be a 52-week like even more so sermon series. And in our brilliance, we decided to do three weeks to tell you who God is. Here's the reality. In our like finite nature, we are unable to fully comprehend who God is. But that's okay. Because God, in his character, and because of who is, he gave us enough. He gave us what we need to know who he is. Uh, one, one theologian put it like this. We are not created with the capacity to understand the fullness of God. Though we are able to grasp the contours of what God has revealed to us, we are able to only touch the hem of God's garment. I think about it like this when describing and talking about the attributes and character of God. It's the difference between a sign and a symbol. Like, think of a stop sign. A stop sign, like, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. Whether we follow it is one thing, but I know what I'm supposed to do, right? Like, red sign in the octagon shape, sure, why not? Uh, it says stop. It, it, like, says it. I know what I'm supposed to do. Clear. Concise. Simple. A symbol, like, take the American flag, gives you ideas of what it means, kind of points you in a direction. For some of us, the American flag could mean freedom, uh, patriotism. For me and my wife, it's the Olympics. For others, it's oppression and injustice. And so a flag is a symbol pointing to something, whether based off our own experience or what we perceive just that symbol to mean. And that's what, and it's not a perfect analogy, but that's a little bit of what, it, what it's like when we talk about the character and the attributes of God. It's, we're giving just like, even using a word and defining these words over the next three weeks, like we're giving you just kind of an outline, a little bit of the fullness of who really God is. But what's beauty, beautiful about it, like I said, is it's enough. It's enough for us. Um, John Calvin put it like this, the finite cannot contain the infinite. Susanna Wesley, who I love, who most of you probably don't know, was the mother of John Wesley, who is the founder of Methodism, which we are a Wesleyan church. Methodism is where our church came from. Like the founder of that church, his mom was amazing. Like if you have any time, I know most of your students probably don't have a lot of time to look this stuff up. Look up Susanna Wesley. She's brilliant. She's amazing. And she said something really simple that I, I was reading two different commentaries this week, two different like just 
theological books on like the holiness of God. And, like, and Susanna Wesley's quote came up twice, and it's just this. This is very simply when talking about and trying to understand who God really is. She said this, only God fully knows who God is. <laughs> that's it. And that's just, it's perfect, it's simple, and that's just the reality of it. So as we talk about the character of God, the attributes of God over the next three weeks, I want you to know and understand what I'm going to say and what we're going to say is not the fullness of who, who God is. We just can't grasp it, but it's enough. It's what we need to know not just how to live life on earth as followers of Jesus, as Christians in a world where First Peter says we are exiles and foreigners, but also to understand really the heart of God for us. So I get to talk tonight about everyone's favorite attribute of God, God's holiness. Think about God's holiness, right? Think of just even the word holy. What thoughts, images, things come to your mind? Like, like for me, pre-Jesus, like I said, kind of Jesus got a hold of me in, in my life when I was 19 years old, was a jackrabbit. Uh, and holiness at that time, if I were to define for you or try to define for you what holiness meant or what it meant to be holy, was this idea of moral perfection, right? It, it, of morality, of not just knowing the difference between right and wrong, but perfectly being able to do right over wrong. And an aspect of that is true, where if I like ask my daughter, hey, what does holy mean? She just points to a donut that has, nope. <laughs> and there's an aspect of moral perfection of right and wrong that is right. But it's not the full glimpse of really what it means that God is holy. I'm going to give us a definition. And I realize even after what I just said, it's not a perfect definition, right? It doesn't even come close to declaring and helping us understand really the holiness of God, but we're here, we're going to go. And this, hopefully, even if you get nothing else from tonight, take this and grasp this and run with this. The holiness of God means this, that God is unmatched, unequaled, and unrivaled in perfection, in power, and in purpose. The holiness of God means this, that God is unmatched, unequaled, and unrivaled in perfection, in power, and in purpose. As you look at the Old Testament, as we look at Scripture, when, when the first time that, that God tends to show himself to people, the word holy is almost always used as the first attribute to describe who God is. All over the Old Testament, you, you read, as we read Psalms, anytime you see this idea of there is no one like you, who can compare to you, no one beside you, it gives this declaration and reality that God is a holy God. You are holy. Who is there like you? The Psalms say unmatched, unequaled, unrivaled in perfection and power and in purpose. The Lord uses the word holy as the first word often to describe himself. Uh, holy is the word that is repeated three times in Revelation as the angels surround the throne and as the, the, the 12 apostles, disciples surround the throne, what they're declaring in praise, the phrase over and over for eternity is not love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty, although that is true. It's not mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord, although that is true. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And there's this beauty in this threefold repetition that means completeness. There's passion. It's affirmation of who God is. He is holy. None like him. Unrivaled, unmatched, unequaled. Even the way that God chose to manifest himself to believers through the Spirit of God, the third person in the Trinity, right? Not love spirit, which would be interesting. Mercy spirit, justice spirit, true spirit. Now, those all things are true about who God is. 
but the declaration of the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. Is our God is just different and unique. And we'll get into a little bit of aspects of this. As I was thinking about this message and thinking about what scripture do we go to? Do we go to a bunch of different ones? And a lot of times when talking about the holiness of God, preachers and, and pastors will go to Isaiah 6 uh, or Moses in the burning bush. And I'm going to go to a story that's a little bit like Moses. Uh, we're going to find ourselves in Joshua chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, if you have your phone, open it up and you're going to read with me. It's Joshua 5 verses 13 through 15. And here in this is, I think, a unique, a different story about aspects and, and gives us a little bit of clarity about the holiness of God. So you have the word, let's open it up and let's read this together. This is Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant?" The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Here we find Joshua, who at this point in the Israelite history is now the leader of the Jewish people. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context, but, but it says he's standing near the city of Jericho, and all of a sudden he looks up. And I think in order for us to understand really, the, I think the... The beauty of this moment and the powerful this, like, nature and reality of this moment. And to give us even, I think, a little bit of clarity on who this commander of the Lord's army is and why this directly points to holiness. I think we, again, like I said, have to understand the context of what's happening here. The context of what's happening here. Forty years earlier, uh, Moses and the, the Israelites escaped slavery from Egypt. We see this in the Exodus story. And 40 years, God delivers them from slavery and he gets ready to, to have them go into the land that he has promised them. And, and so the people were kind of grumbling and wondering, what is this going to be like? Are we going to be able to conquer the land? Is, is what before us? Like, are we going to be able to go into it and, and basically capture and, and, and live into fulfillment the things that God has promised? And so Moses, from the tribes of Israel, raised up 12 leaders... 12 men, and the scripture says 12 spies, and he sends these 12 spies to literally spy on the promised land. Like, hey, can we, can we take it? Can we enter this? Can we defeat the enemy that is before us? 12 go, uh, they all come back, 10 say, we cannot do it. We will be defeated. We don't have the resources or manpower to be able to enter into this land and not die. Two come back and say, we can do it. The Lord is on our side. One is Caleb, and one is Joshua. And then, because the ten happened to be louder than the two, the people grumbled, and in their own disobedience of, uh, before God, God said, this generation will not be able to enter into the promised land. So literally 40 years passes, the generation has, has died. And this new generation of people who've been wandering in the desert are, have crossed the, the Jordan River, are entering into the promised land, and they see their first enemy. And so Joshua, the night before battle, the night before they're going to go and take the city and pass through, goes up and stands most likely on a hill overlooking and long enough to way where he couldn't be spotted, but close enough to where he could see the fortified walls and city of Jericho. A city that had never been overcome. 
And he's looking at it, and I, I just think, what is he thinking in this moment? I feel like he goes back to that time when he came back from the promised land. And now that he has the burden of leadership, he's thinking, those other 10 guys were right. We have the resources nor the technology to do this. And I think he forgot who he was ultimately serving. And he was wrestling and he was wondering. And all of a sudden, it says, the scripture says, he looks up and he sees a man with a sword in his hand. And now because Joshua is ready to fight, he's ready to go and enter into a battle, he runs up to this man and he says, hey, yo, are you a friend or a foe? Like, are you for us or are you against us? Because if you're against us, we're going to have to fight and we're going to have to battle and I'm going to have to kill you. But if you're for us, then you have to bend the knee to me because I am the chosen one, the leader of the Israelites, chosen by God to lead these people into the promised land. And the response of this man is incredible. The response of this warrior, of the commander of the Lord's army is this, neither. Literally the Hebrew is translated, nope. As in, you're asking the wrong question. What you are asking is so off, it's unbelievable. It's not, am I for or fighting for the enemy or fighting for you? It's, who are you fighting for? I am the commander of the Lord's army. I came to win a battle. I came to fight God's fight. Which fight are you battling? Or which battle are you fighting? Who are you here for, Joshua? And immediately, what does Josh do? Falls down in reverence. The Hebrew word for worship. He worships, falls flat on his face. And what's beautiful about this, and this gives us a little bit of a glimpse of who this commander of the Lord's army is. Because Joshua would not have worshipped an angel. Jewish people would not have worshipped that which was created. They only worshipped the creator. They only worshipped God. So why does Joshua fall down on his face in reverence and in worship, bow down before the commander of the Lord? It's because he's in the presence of holiness, a holy God. Now I'm going to go through four different ways and aspects of the holiness of God that I see in this. One, the first aspect of God's holiness is that it is consecrating. And literally what this means is that the, the word holy is sacred, set apart, revered, or divine. Literally, the word holy means set apart, consecrated, for something. Set apart for a specific purpose, or set apart different, unique, unrivaled, unmatched. Uh, something was very different about the commander of the Lord's army, this person that Joshua was in front of. He went up to him to fight him. And then all of a sudden his demeanor changed when he said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army because I think he was in the presence of God. The holiness of God is something he was experiencing. Henry Tyson, who's a biblical scholar, says this about holiness. Uh, God is holy means that he is absolutely separate from, a, from and exalted above all his creatures and creation. And he's entirely, entirely separate from all moral evil and sin. So there's the morality piece. It's there. It's a part of it, but it's not all of it. It's God being holy, but God being consecrated, God being set apart. He is different, elevated, Above all things, he's unrivaled, unmatched, unequal. And the reality of this is that if you believe in a God, which we do as followers of Jesus, God is a creative force behind the whole universe. Um, he's the one and only being with the power to be able to make a world full of beauty and of life. 
And because that's true, the, those abilities make God utterly unique, which is what holiness is. It's unique. He's different. The only one capable of bringing beauty, of creating something from nothing with just breath, as we read in the Genesis account. The Bible Project it's a really cool, cool resource on, on scripture, on different words and thoughts of just like words like holiness. And they have this video out on holiness, seven minute video, go check it out. And they give this idea of a sun as a metaphor when talking about the holiness of God. And they say this, the sun is unique within our specific solar system. It's perfect distance away for life to be created, according to Earth. Um, it's the thing itself that keeps life going. It is intense and powerful. Not only the sun itself, but the area around the sun is intense and dangerous. The power that the sun has, has is the power that gives life to us on Earth is also a very dangerous power. If you get close enough, you will be annihilated. Right? A little bit closer, if the earth was a little bit closer to the sun, we would burn. And if it was a little further away, we wouldn't be able to survive. The sun is unique in relation to us. It brings life. And there's a paradox here at the heart of God's own holiness where we who, in our sin, who are impure, it is danger, dangerous for us to be in the presence of God's holiness. Not because God's holiness is bad, but because it is so good. And so this person, this commander of the Lord's army that Joshua is in front of, he's, there's something different about him. There's something unique that forced him as an Israelite to worship and bow down who he would have only worshipped and bowed down to God. That was God's holiness that compelled Joshua to bow and to worship. And his response was worship because his holiness is also point number two. It's also consuming. The intensity of God's holiness, of just his presence, fills our attention and it changes our demeanor. Like I said, the first attribute that the Lord speaks about a lot of times uh, is his holiness, even here. Uh, Joshua bows. He said, I'm your servant. What message do you bring? And the commander of the Lord's army says, take off your sandals for the ground you are standing on, on is what? Holy. As this commander of the Lord, Lord's army, accepts the worship of jo uh, from Joshua, he declares that the ground you are standing on, the, the presence you are in, is a holy presence. And I think for us to really understand the holiness of God um, in this specific context, in this passage, we have to understand what does it mean when it says the commander of the Lord's army? Why is this person unique? How do we know ultimately what I'm asking? That this was God. The commander of the Lord's army. Uh, in the Old Testament, time and time again, what we get is a human-looking person uh, talking as if he is God. It starts off with Hagar in, Gen Hagar in Genesis 21, where she uh, basically is excommunicated uh, from, from Abraham. Uh, she has a kid, and all of a sudden she feels isolated and alone. Uh, and the angel, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, says the angel of the Lord, comes by her side and basically says, God hears you, he sees you, and he wants you to know you belong in his presence and with him. Another time, uh, Moses in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord is in it. The pillar of fire that led the Israelites uh, in the desert during those 40 years before they entered the promised land was filled with the angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord speaks like he is God and accepts worship like he is God. This angel of the Lord, also associated with phrases like angel of Yahweh uh, and angel of God, is said uh, 59 times in the Old Testament. 
He appears to carry the characteristics of God um, because he bears the name of God and allows himself to be worshipped and recognized. Uh, Another theologian, God's holiness to me is really overwhelming. It's a really tough topic for me to preach on because I think a lot of times, even for myself, I don't fully understand it. So there was a lot of reading that I did and a lot of people who are just way smarter than I am that have a lot of really good things to say about the holiness of God. And one person called Alec Matir, uh, he says this about this idea of the angel of the Lord. He says this, it seems to be that by means of the angel of the Lord, God can come, or the commander of the Lord's army, God can come among people safely. The angel is reveal, revealed as a merciful presence whereby the Holy Lord, uh, where the Holy Lord can be present among a sinful people. Where if God himself in all of his glory were to show up, people would be consumed. Because it's not that God can't be in the presence of sin and impurity. It's that sin cannot be in the presence of God because God is holy. And so what does God do? Is he sends down in human form a representative who is God himself to be safely among his people but still is the presence of holiness. The angel of the Lord, anytime that is talked about, is the mode of divinity whereby the holy God can keep company with the sinful people. There's only one other person in the Bible who is both identifiable with God, yet very, very distinct. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, I believe, can only be appreciated if we understand him as the pre-incarnate representation of Jesus Christ himself. When we see angel of the Lord, commander of the Lord's army, when Joshua looked up, what he saw was the face of of Jesus coming for a purpose. And as followers of Jesus, we know that Jesus is God, and because he is God, he is holy. And that illuminates from his being. What we see with the commander of the Lord's army and the angel of the Lord, with Jesus being present among the people, even in the Old Testament, we see that if God needs to deliver and save his people, he comes in human form. And that is powerful, and that is intense and consuming, and it changes the way we see and view life. The third thing about the holiness of God that I see here in the scripture is that the holiness of God is commanding, which is really aggressive, but it's okay and it's good, um, because commanding is this. Holiness gives an authority to ask of us that which is most desirable for our good and for God's glory. There's a reality that the authority of God is a command, or the holiness of God is a commanding holiness for our good and for his glory. It's not a malicious attack because God just wants to control people in an aggressive way. God's holiness is to say, I have an idea and an aspect of how I desire for you to live your life that is for your good. And if you live into that, you will be living out a life that will glorify me, that will point people to me. Verse 15, it says, the commander of the Lord's army replied after Joshua said, what's the message that you have? Take off your sandals. Weird request. Like that's the thing that was asked. Take off your sandals, right? Immediately gives us a picture back to the burning bush of Moses being before this bush as he's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He said, you take off your sandals because the place you were standing, the ground you were literally standing on it's holy ground. And it wasn't that the ground was holy, is that God's holiness is so powerful and intense and spectacular and scary that it's not just himself that like illuminates holiness, it's that it's so powerful that it literally goes 
into the space and area where he's at. And so he says, take off your sandals. When we think about the commanding potential nature of God's holiness, we think about when Jesus asks um, or tells the disciples, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. We're going through a series in 1 Peter called Different. And last week, Pastor Aaron, on Sunday morning, he talked about this reality where we as, as set-apart people, uh, as, as exiles and foreigners living in land, need to live out of our identity as holy people. And in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, be holy, you to be holy as God is holy. And I think we just get this phrasing mixed up. Because if we really truly understand what holy means and the, what the holiness, God, uh, holiness of God means for us, it changes, I think, how we live life and how we go about being holy. And so why the sandals? What's with the sandals? If we go into the book of Leviticus, which again, I know everyone's favorite book probably, you go into the book of Leviticus, Leviticus does not just talk about holy people, right? Because that's what we think of. We think of morality, uh, right and wrong, like someone perfectly doing what is right. Leviticus gives continual description of like holy objects, holy utensils. It talks about holy pots at some point, holy articles of clothing. And, and again, this can be confusing because how can a utensil or a pot be holy if what we think holiness is is just moral perfection? A pot or an article of clothing or sandals can't be sinful, right? You see, in Leviticus, there's a common definition of holiness, a pot was holy, sandals were holy, an article of clothing was holy if it was only used in the service of God. If its only purpose of existence was to be used in the service of God. You see, even in Leviticus, the opposite of holy is not sinful, it's just common. There's holy use and common use. So what you wouldn't do uh, is if you knew you were going, especially as a priest going into the Holy of Holies in the temple to be in God's presence, what you wouldn't do is the sandals that you wore around just in your day-to-day -day life, you wouldn't take those sandals that were used for common use into God's presence because they hadn't been consecrated, set apart, holy, only used for one purpose, which was in service to God. Right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't have your pot, as Leviticus says, that you had at home to make bread out of and bring that into the temple, bring that into the presence of God and use that as a sacrificial thing to worship God because it wasn't holy. It wasn't that it was sinful. It was just common and common isn't bad. It just wasn't holy. You see, what it means to be holy is to be exclusively committed to God because he has no rivals. He has no equals. What does this look like in comparison to morality? You look at the Pharisees in the New Testament, and they were, from the outside looking in, moral people. They, they knew the difference between right and wrong, and a lot of them actually lived in a moral type of way, from the outside looking in. They were moral people. They did what was right, to a degree. But they weren't holy people because their morality was for themselves, not for God. You can live right and make the right decisions, but if you're not making the right decisions for God and you're doing it for yourself, it's not holy, because holy is exclusively committed to God. Exclusively committed to God. The Pharisees lived moral lives because they wanted to control God and to control people. They wanted to be superior and self-righteous. 
So morality does not equate to holy. But you can be holy and still live a moral life because to be holy is to be exclusively committed to God. The last aspect of the holiness of God that I see um, in this scripture is that the holiness of God conserves. And I'm defining conserve this way. It protects from harm anything that would come to, to corrupt or destroy God's creation. Go back to verse 13. What we see is Joshua looking out at Jericho. He lifts up his head, and what he sees is a man who is standing with sword in hand. And he has this, like, this is aggressive. This is, I'm scared holding this thing. And if you're Joshua, and you're looking down, most likely praying, like, God, I don't know if we're going to be able to take Jericho. How's it going to happen? And all of a sudden, you see a man like this, like, standing with the sword. That's creepy. The man was ready for something. The commander of the Lord's army was ready for something. If you're a soldier, you don't have your sword sheathed and belted if you're going into battle. There was a purpose behind why this man had sword in hand, why the commander of the Lord's army, why Jesus had sword in hand. He came ready to battle and ready for a fight, ready to protect. Ooh, sorry. Ready to protect his creation. To protect it from harm, from that which would destroy it, but also to make right that which was wrong. That is the holiness of God. It is in his unrivaled, unmatched, unequaled nature that he comes and makes right that which was wrong. And what is wrong? We, in our own devices and in our own power, I should put this down for her myself. We are sinful people. Meaning time and time again, outside of the help of God, if we are up to our own choices without the Holy Spirit, we would choose to live for ourselves and make decisions for ourselves time after time after time. And we do. And that is what it means to be a sinful people. Is I'm just living a life solely for myself in selfishness, not caring about what others think, not caring about what others, period. Or even if I do care about what others, it's only because I want them to think good of me. To be sinful is to solely live for ourselves. It was sin that made us, quote-unquote, impure. It was sin that broke a relationship with God that was perfect in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And because we are sinful, we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God without something having to happen. Even if you look at Old Testament worship and look at the book of Leviticus and look at how they went about literally worshiping God. The temple was the main place where God's holiness was located. The temple of the Lord, uh, in the center of it was a room, like I mentioned, called the Holy of Holies, where literally God resided. And there were specific things, ritual things, that the priests had to do in in order to enter into this place. The Leviticus lays out a ton of different ways that you were made impure, that you potentially were sinful, both morally and ritually. They said that if you were to touch a decomposing like carcass or touch a dead body, you were technically impure. The impurity of death would transfer over to you. So therefore, in Leviticus, God laid out this ritual that you would have to perform as a priest in order to enter into God's presence. 
And so because of God's nature as a holy God, in this form, in the Old Testament, he gave them ways to make themselves pure again or make themselves at least right to go into the presence of God. If you touch something in prayer, you would become impure. There were two instances uh, in the Old Testament, or a few stories, I say, not just two. One Isaiah 6 I could talk about, and then one in Ezekiel 47, where instead of, Ezekiel has this vision, and instead of the priests having to do these specific rituals and things in order to make themselves pure again, if they were impure, if they were sinful, if they, if they had committed sin in order to make themselves right, in order to enter in the presence of God, instead of them having to do that, Ezekiel sees this vision of waters flowing from the temple. And this waters flew, uh, flooded into the Dead Sea and made everything right. And, and there produced life and beauty. And a lot of Old Testament scholars and even Jewish things at the time, like they were thinking like, what is the purpose of this? Can we fully understand what this means? And they, uh, there was no answer behind the question of like, what really does this mean until Jesus? You see, Jesus did not just come to fulfill the law, to fulfill the law in such a way that we no longer have to now do the rituals if, if we commit us and we no longer have to think about what are the specific steps I need to take in order to enter into the presence of God. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, made a way that not only would sin be destroyed, but we would experience a transformation of our own self that we would go from those sinful, impure people to now, because of Jesus, not just being seen as children of God, being seen as set apart for his purposes, we now became the Holy of Holies, the temple in which the Holy Spirit, the presence of God himself, would dwell within us to pursue and do the things that God has called us faithfully to do. You see, when Jesus came, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he made pure what was impure. That which was sinful, he made sinless. That which was unholy, he made holy. And that is you, and that is me. So now I no longer, because of the holiness of God, his unrivaled, unmatched, unequaled reality in nature, in perfection and power and purpose, I no longer have to wonder, what do I have to do to enter into the presence of God? Jesus has done it for me. He came sword in hand, metaphorically, to destroy sin and to transform how we are to live life and experience a holy God. We no longer have to wonder. No longer have to wonder, where do I stand? What do I need to do? Man, I sinned a little bit this week. I fell short a little bit this week. No, because of Jesus. We don't have to do these little things to get right before God. We already are made right. You see, because sin can't be in the presence of a holy God. So he made us perfect. Because when he sees us, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he sees perfection because of the blood of Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice that fulfilled the law perfectly and completely. Uh, worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up. The night before Jesus died, he's praying in John 17. And he's with his disciples. And, and the thing that he prays about is unity. And he, he defines even what salvation is and what eternal life is. And it's just this beautiful prayer. In one aspect, in one moment in that prayer, in John 17, verse 19, 
he looks at his disciples and he says this, for their sake, I sanctify myself. And sanctify is another word for holy. It's another word for set apart, to consecrate. He's basically saying, for their sake, for the disciples' sake, I make myself holy. And it wasn't moral perfection because he was already morally perfect. When he is saying, I sanctify myself, he's saying, I'm solely focused on one thing, and that is to save them. It is to save you. It was to save me. He made himself holy. He gave himself away. He committed to go to the cross for our sake so that we could live with a holy God. When you see and when we understand in some way what Jesus has done for us, a recognition of the true holiness of God, how he is unmatched, unequaled, unrivaled, I believe that we not only can be holy because he makes us holy, we can not only be holy, exclusively committed living for Jesus, but I think when we grasp the holiness of God and how perfect and different and unique he is, and yet he came to save us, to fight for us, and is still fighting for us, we not only can be holy, but we want to be. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for tonight, for life and breath, for opportunity to, to come and worship again, to dive into your word, to see the uniqueness of who you are. How in your nature as someone who is unrivaled, unmatched, unequaled in a lot of different ways, you didn't leave us in our sin to be separated from you forever. You made a way that those of us, all of us who were sinful, who were impure, you made pure through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And not only made pure, you gave us purpose. You transformed us into the dwelling place, the holy of holies of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for your holiness. Thank you that there is no one like you that the love that you show is a holy love because it's different, it's unique than any kind of love we would experience. The grace that you show is a different type of grace because it's unique and different that no one else can offer or give. What other king would leave his throne to die for us? You are unique, you are holy. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.